Our, our scripture reading this morning comes from uh, Matthew chapter 13. Uh, we'll be reading verses 1 through 17. It's a familiar parable that Jesus tells. It's the parable of the sower. It goes out to sow. But there's also, uh, in the second part of this reading, a description of why Jesus actually teaches in parables so much. And so I want us to think about that just a little bit. And um, before we do, let us, let us pray together. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. May we together wait upon you this day that we might also be lifted up to soar. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So listen carefully, listen well. This too is the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he, who, and he will have an abundance. But from, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning, we are continuing in this series on learning to see, hoping to see the light of Christ around us in the world, the transcendent um, light of Jesus shining in us and one another, in the church, in the world, in the created order. Um, that's our goal, to learn to see more fully the light of Christ. Uh, interesting that in this parable, and then in Jesus' explanation of the parable, he says that there are some people who have eyes but don't see, and some people who have ears but don't hear. And I, I had 
I've never really understood this passage, and I don't know that I really do now, to be honest with you. Um, but I think maybe I understand a little bit more, or at least I hear it slightly differently because of this series that we've been going through. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because having eyes they don't see and having ears they don't hear. Jesus is speaking to them in parables for this reason. Um, part of the reason we're trying to learn to see more of God's glory in the world around us, learn to see the light of Christ more fully, is because, I, I guess, I mean, most of us don't see it fully. I don't know if you do. do, you, do you, are, is the world transfigured always for you? As you walk through it, um, do, you have, do you have eyes that see in that way? Do you have ears that hear in that way? I, I want to have ears that hear like that and eyes that see like that. And so we're seeking to embark on that journey together. We've been doing it with a few different categories in mind because these things are going to begin to shape us, shape our ability to see. Holy places. We talked about the temple, the tabernacle, the church, uh, the sanctuary. Holy people, uh, we think about the priests uh, in the Old Testament who inhabit and are clad in different garments and so on, uh, and the saints of the church. Um, you and I then as well, called uh, to be holy. And then holy things, those, those items that God orders to be placed within the temple, within the tabernacle, and we might think of the font or the table or the, uh, the pulpit here. So holy places, holy people, holy things. We've talked also about ritual. Uh, we've made the sign of the cross, uh, that thing that we left off at the Reformation, unfortunately. Um, so we've, we've talked about making the sign of the cross as a way to offer up our lives to God uh, and also to trace the pattern of Christ from heaven to earth, even into death, who was raised to the right hand of God and has promised to come again. We've talked about doing that in the morning, in the evening, just as God commanded the morning and the evening sacrifice uh, to be offered there. Sacrifice, which is a way of offering hospitality to God and to share a meal with God, a place where relationship can develop over time, morning and evening, um, offering both the sign of the cross, but also the Jesus prayer, another ritual, a pattern, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Then we talked about beauty. So after holiness, after ritual, we're talking about beauty, how beauty is actually uh, the pattern of love, if you should pass through it appropriately. Now, beauty draws us in. It attracts us. There's that uh, capacity for desire described by eros in Greek. So you're drawn in love to something beautiful. Um, if you continue appropriately, that beautiful object in the world raises you to contemplate then the beauty of God, the one who made this thing. That experience takes you outside of yourself in an ecstatic experience. You forget yourself for a moment because you are focused outwardly. And that is what frees you to live in love as one who live, loves with agape, self-sacrificial love. So beauty it, it follows this, this framework, um, this trajectory. And so uh, last week we looked at icons, beautiful images, which were created not so much to accurately portray a person's features, but to capture something of how they appear in the light of the kingdom. And so gazing upon a beautiful image can lead us to contemplate God and to transform us into the kinds of people that live selflessly. Um, this morning we're going to talk not about beautiful images, but about beautiful words. And Jesus, as the word, 
becomes human and so is able to speak to us in our own human speech in beautiful ways. And one of the chief ways that he chose to speak to us, the way that God chose to speak to you and I, was through parables. Parables that weren't always easy to understand. Parables that came, yes, in in beautiful language, but um, didn't exactly meet us head on but sort of came around the side just a little bit and worked their way in. He spoke in parables so that people could see and hear, but he spoke in parables because they go to the heart. And in the kingdom, blindness and lack of hearing is more a function of your heart than your eyes or your ears. Jesus spoke in parables because parables are full of simile and metaphor and allegory and types, and antitypes, and symbols, which take things that we think we know all about already, and pose them to us in a way that makes us reconsider. A story has a way of working its way into your heart, so you have to wrestle with it a little bit now. The assumptions you've made are now lifted up and and held differently in light of the word that Christ speaks. So, This is why Jesus speaks in parables, I think. Because he really does want us to come to him so he can heal us. That's what it said, right? And he's telling these stories because they go to the heart, which eventually will allow us to see and to hear, truly. Um, So, you can think of all manner of places in the Scripture. The Scriptures are full of places that speak in simile and metaphor and allegory. That You know, the, the literal aspect is important, Uh, But there are higher aspects to the scriptures which can also convey to us the truth that God wants us to know. Um, Let's just take a for example. Uh, This reminds me, um, well, of the prayer which I prayed at the beginning. right? I I don't always pray this prayer, but I will often pray this prayer. Uh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's taken from the psalm. I bet none of you really believe God's a rock. Right? But we're speaking of God in this way because a rock is solid. A rock is strong. A rock is a foundation. Christ is the rock upon which we can stand. Go to Matthew 7 and you can see how he describes uh, a life which keeps his commandments as a life built on the rock. Or uh, just think of Psalm 1. So the, uh, the righteous... Uh, Man is one who walks not in the way of sinners or stands in the seat of scoffers and so on. But instead, the righteous person is like, there's that word, like. Remember seventh grade similes, right? Like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. All that he does, he prospers. When I think of the righteous person, when I think of trying to be righteous, I I tend to pose that in terms of moral categories, which are certainly an aspect of it. But I don't immediately usually think of righteous person and a tree. Do you? No, right. And yet, there it is. If you want to understand a righteous person, the scriptures are inviting you to contemplate a tree. You know, know there's um, this thing about trees in that they don't move their entire life, right? Like a tree never moves. This one's planted by streams of water, which does move. So there's stability, there's renewal, 
There's life given. There are roots that grow deep. There are arms that branch everward. A tree is in this unique position between earth and sky, bringing together heaven and earth. The righteous man does the same thing, living in the world in a way that follows the commandments of the Lord Jesus and so brings to bear a life that resembles Christ in the world, bringing those things together, solid, strong, stable, and yet constantly be re being renewed. Water and baptism. I mean, all these things come together, a tree and a cross. There's a lot to be found in these things, you know. Um, so what I brought to you today is uh, a sheet with a few poems on it. Because poetry is full of simile and metaphor and comparisons and juxtapositions and allegories and all kinds of different things. Um, poems are full of beautiful words that don't meet us head on. Like a textbook or, uh, you, you know, like you might read about in your biology class but that sort of come around the side and come to the heart in a way that, well, I think, like beautiful images, like holy people, places, and things, like ritual can help to shape us in a particular way so that we look and live and see differently and experience Christ's presence more fully. So what I attempted to do uh, was say, you know, we've been talking about holy people, places, things, ritual, and so on. I think I'd like to find a poem that sort of captures a little bit of each one of those categories. Uh, some of them are pretty short. All of them actually are fairly short. And um, these come from folks like Malcolm Geith, who I mentioned before, or Wendell Berry that I talked about last week, um, and uh, uh, Eugene Peterson as well. And I, I, had, I have way more than I could include, and I'm not going to get to all these today, but I have this for you. And you're welcome to take it with you. Although, don't tell the sheriff, because uh, I think it's probably illegal for me to just type out somebody's poetry and send it to people. But anyway, uh, Jesus says, do not, when you pray, heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. Don't pile words on top of words on top of words. This first one has 11 words. Thinking about holy places. Stone of the earth, made of its own weight, light. Stone of the earth, made of its own weight, light. You start with a rock. Stone. Where does the poem end? Light. So immediately you see there's a transformation happening here in this poem, isn't there? You begin with stone, you end with light. Let's take it a step further. The stone is of the earth. We have earth. Where is light coming from? The heavens. Okay, again, heaven and earth. There's a coming together here and a transformation that's happening here. As you all know by now, human beings occupy that central place between heaven and earth. This poem is actually formed uh, as a, in a chiastic structure. The letter chi in Greek looks like an X, right? And so uh, most of the, many of the Psalms are formulated in this exact pattern. In a chiastic structure, the center of the poem is the most important part. What's the middle of this poem? Made. Made. Created. Fashioned. 
Who's the creator? Who's the maker? God. Stone of the earth, made of its own weight, light, a transformation from... What are are stones? Stones are heavy. Stones weigh something. Um, Stones can be piled on top of each other, but light is what? Light is light. It is not heavy. There's a sense of freedom there, isn't it? You, you, You begin the poem with heaviness, and you end with light. A transformation takes place, created. I couldn't read this without thinking about a stone that got rolled back. Yeah? A stone, heavy, dark, of the earth. Jesus buried in the earth, under the earth. But then by the end of the poem, made now of its own weight, light. Light shines forth. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. There's a transformation that happens. Just within the poem itself, but what's the title? Cathedral. What's a cathedral? It's a big church. It's really where the bishop sits, but it's, a, it's, it's usually big, right? It's the church. It's the, think of the sanctuary. When you come to church on a Sunday morning, have you ever had the experience of coming in the door heavy? burdened, weighed down, but by the time you left after encountering Christ who has made you, created you, but also recreated you and redeemed you, who has rolled the stone back and says, take my yoke upon you for my burden is gentle and light. Have you ever left raised up in spirit, full of the light of Christ, experiencing freedom? Has that ever happened to you? If it hasn't, maybe maybe next week, before you come in the church on Sunday morning, you can take two minutes And read this poem before you come in. And guess what will happen? I think. Little by little, if you just decide to do that before coming to church on Sunday morning, it's 11 words, just memorize it, right? Your eyes might be open just a little more. The stone from your own heart might be rolled back a little further so the light of Christ could shine in you and shine out of you and shine around you and your expectations for what might happen in the cathedral could be changed. Eleven words. I could keep going with this one, but we'll, we'll, we'll move on, right? Eleven beautiful words that change us. Holy places. Holy people. Uh, this one's from Wendell Berry. Amanda knows Wendell Berry. Um, I don't know if she knows him personally, but she knows his poetry. Uh, he wrote, on, su- on Sundays, he'd take walks on his farm in Kentucky. And uh, he would write a poem on these Sabbath days. And he collected those. So they're different years, and he, he has Sabbath poems. And this is one of them from 1999. Uh, we've been talking about holy people, but see if this one doesn't meet you head on, but sort of comes in around the side and changes your perspective of what holiness might could look like. I dream of a quiet man who explains nothing, And defends nothing, but only knows where the rarest wild flowers are blooming and who goes and finds that he is smiling, not by his own will. I dream of a quiet man who explains nothing and defends nothing, but only knows where the rarest wild flowers are blooming and who goes and finds that he's smiling, not by his own will. Holy people, 
the saints say that the beginning of encountering God is stillness, silence, quiet. Not just outwardly, but inwardly. And Wendell Berry is not saying, I'm the quiet man. And he's not saying, I know the quiet man. I don't know that many people who are quiet, to be honest. But he's dreaming of one. He's longing for someone like that. To be someone like that, I think. A quiet man. This is not the man or the woman on cable news. This is not your TV set. Um... I dare say that you have heard more words spoken to you in your lifetime. I mean, I don't know how many more times, uh, how many more words you would have heard than, say, your parents. Certainly your grandparents. How many words have been spoken at you and toward you? Think about all the words you hear. So many words. And I've noticed that on the news, a lot of times, they're explaining things and defending things. And he's dreaming of a quiet man who explains nothing and who defends nothing. That first word hits me because so often I think my job is to explain things. Whereas perhaps I'd be better off being a little more quiet. But this man who is quiet, who doesn't explain or defend, is not without knowledge. He does know something. He knows where the rarest wild flowers are blooming where life happens, beautiful life. It's like a pearl of great price, a treasure buried in a field. He knows where this is. That's the parable Jesus spoke of, isn't it? And here's another. He knows where the rarest wildflowers are blooming, and he goes there, and he finds that he's smiling. He finds that he is joyful. He finds that he experiences beauty and life. And this smile of his comes not from his own will. And so much of my life I just spend thinking that everything depends on what I choose and what I do and what I try to make happen. But actually for the quiet man, maybe for the holy man, there's something that happens, there's a switch that happens where you begin to receive. He didn't make those flowers, but he knows where they are. He didn't create life but he knows where to encounter it. And he draws near to that place and discovers joy. In fact, I dare say that where those wild, beautiful wildflowers bloom is also a sanctuary of sorts. A thin place. Holy places, holy people, holy things. This one's from Malcolm Geit. Communion table, St. Edward's, Cambridge. I suppose he wrote this either... They are contemplating uh, this, this communion table. I want you to listen to this one. The centuries have settled on this table, deepened the grain beneath a clean white cloth which bears afresh our changing elements. Again, something's happening here. Transformation, isn't it? The centuries have settled on the table. Year after year after hundreds of years, the grains of the table have grown deep. It's old. It's ancient. And yet there's a clean white cloth. And the elements on it are ever-changing. It's like the tree planted by streams of water which are renewing. It's like a sacrament might happen there at this table. 
year after year in hope and in trouble were, think about this. This is where it gets beautiful to me. Year after year in hope and in trouble were poured out. What do I do at the table? I pour out the cup. We're poured out here, and then what else do I do? I, I said, Jesus took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it. He said, year after year, in hope and in trouble, we're poured out here and blessed and broken, both in aching absence and in absent presence. This table, too, the earth herself has given, and human hands have made, where candle flame at corners burns and turns the air to light. Now notice again, the, the table comes from the earth, yes? But there's humanity who has given it shape, standing in the middle. And what happens at the top? The candle light turns air, the air of the heavens, to flame and light shines. You see all the heavy symbolism here? The oak once held, talking about the tree now, the oak, which the table is made from, once held its branches up to heaven, blessing the elements there's that word again, bread and wine, which it became, rooting the dew and the rain, branching the light. Here's the oak, like the tree that sits by streams of water, deeply rooted, giving life, right, from the earth and giving shape in the tree, becoming those elements which it became. Why can it do this? Why can it do this? Here's the answer. Because another tree can bear unbearable for us the weight of love. Because another tree can, so can this table. What is the other tree? Help me with that. What's the other tree? It's the cross. Yeah, Mark's got it. Because of that tree, of the cross, this table can also bear that weight. Do you remember that first uh, poem? Stone of the earth made of its own weight. Light. See how all these things are kind of connected in their own way? I've got one more for you. If you'll turn this over, look at the middle one. Uh, we're talking about beauty. And here we're going to talk about um, the beauty of love. Again, a Sabbath poem. I know for a while again the health of self-forgetfulness. What stage of love is that? The, you remember in beauty you are attracted, you're raised in contemplation, ecstatically you are forgetful of yourself for a moment which frees you to love with self-sacrificial love. This is that third stage, right? He didn't know we talked about this, but this is what is being described. I know for a while again the health is good for you of self-forgetfulness. Looking out at the sky, that's the heavens, right? Through a notch in the valley side, a space between the earth and the heaven, through a notch. The black woods, wintry on the hills, again, trees playing this interesting role between earth and heaven, joining them together like the cross. Small clouds at sunset, Light reflected off the clouds, passing across. And I know that this is one of the thresholds between earth and heaven from which even I may step forth from myself and be free. 
We're talking about that thin place right here, aren't we? We, we describe holy places as thin places where heaven and earth draw close like a notch in the valley side through which he can see the sky and the clouds and the sunset reflecting. And in this moment, encountering this beauty, he forgets himself for a moment and is set free. For what? For God. For beauty. To encounter God's holiness in this place. That in turn, changing him, his ability to see, changing his heart in self-forgetful love so that he can see uh, what is there in God's presence. You know, I mean, you can take these home with you and read them time to time if you'd like. But you really don't need to love poetry. <laughs> That's not like a prerequisite here. Um, to recognize the beauty of words and how they change us and how they come at us from the side. In fact, you have this capacity in your own life to speak a beautiful word to somebody and in an instant completely change their ability to see and to hear God's presence around them. You can do this, and you don't have to write beautiful poetry to do it. And so maybe that's the invitation for you this morning. Here's the assignment. Today, not tomorrow. Well, tomorrow too if you want. But today, I want you to speak a beautiful word to someone. Say, I love you. Say, I'm really grateful for you. Say, I'm proud of you. Say, God is using you in my life. Speak a word of beauty to someone else. I like your smile. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be fancy. But guess what? It will change that, something for that person. Um, and little by little, as we learn to both receive God's beautiful words, but also to share them with others, as our hearts are changed, guess what? Our eyes are healed and our ears are opened. Let's do that work together. Let's become that kind of place and that kind of people. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.